0: Welcome to the Sum of It All podcast with Season 5, Curious Schools. I'm Audrey Meddeville along with my colleague, Mark Alcorn, from the San Diego County Office of Education, and we're excited to launch Season 5 with you. This season, we're exploring the book, Building a Curious School, Restore the Joy that Brought You to School, by Brian Goodwin. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we're going to chat about the three introductory sections to the book, the forward preface and prologue, which do a marvelous job setting the stage for this book, and perhaps even giving you a reason to read along with us this season. So let's dive in.
1: Well, so glad to be back with you, Audrey. Uh, In the forward in in this particular book, there's a quote that caused me to just pause right away. And here's the quote. In school, we spend time focused on teaching students to see the turns in life and not enough time thinking about what might be around those turns. Mm. And yeah, that that just already started my gears turning around this work and this idea of infusing curiosity into our overly structured lives. Uh, You know, Audrey, right away, I'm thinking, you know, that's kind of complicated. You know, it it almost, it almost feels like an interruption. Like, you know, let's stop doing our lives like they are and, and let's have this curiosity interruption. You know, it's easy to agree with that statement, but it's harder to make it happen. So in this particular book, I'm so looking forward to reading it, to figure out new ways and to be uh, thoughtful about ways to live into that statement. Right? Yeah,
0: I agree with that, Mark. You know, uh, it's a great point. And in the and that forward, you know, they talked about um, the, the purpose of why we do what we do in schools. You know, like um, they wrote, my mission during my career has been to provide students with a culture that fosters critical thinking and problem solving skills, allows them to find success in school and life. You know, and, and similarly, I might have said something slightly different, um, and maybe you would have said something slightly, but it's all along the same kind of, you know, we, we're looking to help our students become successful adults, right? Like that's part of why we got into teaching um, more so than maybe even the summer's off or the big (laughs) bonus checks that never seem to come our way. Um, And, and I think when you get to the, like the question of like, what are we actually doing in the classroom to make that happen? Right. And, and I think, you know, I might've said, I want to inspire lifelong learners, but what was I doing each and every day in the classroom that was inspiring and to become these expert learners themselves, or what am I doing with teachers? Every time I work with teachers, that helps inspire them into asking those questions and really thinking curiously about the world. Um, because I think a lot of times I might have gotten really misguided, or maybe just inundated with so much of the things that say like, "Okay, you need to be successful in school. So to be successful in school, you got to show up on time, and you got to turn things in on time." And you know, I. I work on building those skills more so than um, building things that are really authentic to being successful in life, right? Like asking why in important points in time, or um, pausing and saying, "How does that work?" Um, and trying to, you know, uncover something um, more so than maybe the little rote things that I spent probably too much time focusing in on.
1: Yeah, great, great points, Audrey. And you know, in my work as an elementary educator my head goes right back to this idea of like, you know, we want kids to learn manners. I mean, there's a lot of sort of learning how to do school in elementary, you know, raising your hand and so forth. But some of this seems like it's juxtaposed with this idea of building curiosity. But because if we want to build this and this nurture this curiosity, we want to encourage students to ask lots of questions. But sometimes that's in conflict with this idea of, of sitting and, and having this idea of compliance and, and, and minding your manners. And it's, it's made me think of this idea of are our school, stu- are, are our schools factories of compliance or laboratories of learning? You know, there's, there's been lots of discussion in the field lately about this idea of compliance and whether it's getting in the way. Um, and you know, as as we've learned, our schools are generated on on this factory model from like over a hundred years ago. And Audrey, you and I are both parents, and we certainly feel that some really interesting questions over the years from our own children. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean that that makes me wonder: like, do kids ask more questions at school or at home, and why? And so all that to say, like, how can we still make sure that we're maintaining a school and in a classroom that is going to have kids have some sort of order to it but at the same time not so wrapped up in compliance that we're not able to have our kids be curious.
0: Yeah I, I think that's a great point Mark because already you know you're saying that and I'm like yes kids need to ask more questions but 30 kids asking the questions that my <laughs> own two children ask me at home like that's that's I can't even imagine right um right and and so I think I'm, I'm looking forward to reading more about these sections that talk about how do we do that in a way that both maintains the ability to move a class forward in learning, but also really fosters um, the curiosity and helps continue to build that within our students. You know, it also makes me think about educators being curious. Um, and I don't know, you know, we talk a lot um, in previous episodes and things about teachers in our own professional learning journeys and being treated as professionals. Um, and part of that, I think, is also on us like to stay curious, right? And what does that look like and sound like? Um, there was a, a section of the forward that talked about that when we learn about our students and their communities through our own curiosity, care, and concern, um, we can, I mean, we can really do amazing things um, and understanding our students. And I think I think that's a great reminder that as educators, as principals, as TOSAs, as you know, wherever you're sitting in kind of the field of education, like we have um, the need to also stay curious and to look at um, making connections and developing long lasting relationships with our students and their families um, in order that we maintain that curiosity around like who are they and how do I best help and support these individuals become who they wanna become, right? Um, uh, as opposed to putting my own perspective on it and saying, here's the success I've deemed for you, or I've you know, limited for you or, or, or any of those pieces.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure, Audrey. There's a quote that it actually speaks to something very similar that what you're talking about in the forward. And it says, curious teachers and principals, become better learners and must always place a priority on developing learning cultures instead of teaching cultures. And I thought that was such a a nice way to frame it, to learn cultures instead of feeling like you're just always in teacher mode. Um, You know, when we talked about reading this book for this podcast, I have to admit, I was thinking primarily about increasing opportunities for students to be more curious in school settings. But after reading the first few pages, I'm actually equally convinced that how much it could matter for adults to be curious to learn from their own students. Um, I'm especially curious about how that could actually eliminate the power structure of the teacher as the sole deliverer of knowledge. And as, as a teacher, if I'm curious about what my students are thinking, that just completely shifts the perspective of how things, ideas are exchanged within a classroom.
0: Yeah. I mean, and transforming that power structure can be absolutely um, critical in, in rethinking how our math classes look and I'm mm. sure in other content areas too. Sure. You know, in the preface, the first two paragraphs really spoke to me. So when you were just saying about how when we chose this book, what were you thinking about and what were you anticipating? I mean, these first two paragraphs in the preface um, are the reason I am sitting down and reading this book with you and having these conversations. Um, and so if, if you're listening in and you haven't had a chance to either read those online um, or grab a copy of the book and read them, I really recommend it. I think it sets the stage well for what this book is going to be about. Um, but this idea that I could sense something was missing in my classroom, that there was, um, you know, like the energy and enthusiasm was not there, and that it might have been, as they um, quote from the book says, an avalanche of unfunded mandates, unrelenting pressures, and unintended consequences of policies landing on the doorstep of my classroom from far off places. Like, there's no blame necessarily put on one person or another. Like, there's there's just a lot. And in today's moment, as we're recording this, there's a lot on teachers' plates. Um, And so it's not to say, like, there's any blame here in saying why curiosity is not in your classroom. But you could look up and say, like, I wanted curiosity to be there, but there's so much other stuff. It's not like, I just don't have time for it. And that when we've looked outside of the classroom and really experienced the joy of learning and seeing students be excited and curious and asking questions and working tirelessly or endlessly on, on some kind of project or question that they have that they want to understand. Like we know what the, it is like, we can look at it and say, I know what it looks like when when learning is exciting, and it all stems back from that curiosity and being curious. Um, And so even though there might not be like a recipe for making this work in your classroom, that there's common elements or there's guiding principles that we can talk about throughout this reading of this book that might help us to better push away that avalanche or the unrelenting pressures and make time and space um, to really foster curiosity in our classroom.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that that honesty of that piece that you brought out, Audrey, of of just the the amount of overwhelming um, pressure that uh, educators feel on a daily basis. But but that hope of how we can change that is is just what really inspires me to read further. So thank you for setting the stage so nicely for that. Um, Maybe it'd be helpful to tell our listeners a little bit about how this this season will be structured with how we're going to read the book. Um, so the book's actually organized into five parts. And so each of those parts has multiple chapters. We're going to go ahead and read the book in parts together in terms of our, our season in each of our episodes instead of chapters. So I'm going to just give a quick overview for our listeners of what each part is. So part one, in part one, uh, the authors will the author will unpack the facets of curiosity and how we and our students demonstrate curiosity. So that's what we'll talk about next week. Uh, Part two will be how current approaches to teaching often squash curiosity in the classroom and, and how we can create classrooms that include curiosity. So that sounds like some really practical things in part two. In part three, how teachers can experience curiosity and the joy of discovery in their own professional learning. Part four, How Interpersonal Curiosity Supports Social-Emotional Learning. And finally, in part five, we'll be discussing the link between curiosity and well-being, happiness, and as a tool to navigate crises. So, Audrey, I, I think we have a lot of great learning to do and looking forward to talking about all these interesting pieces with you.
0: Yeah, we sure do. I'm excited about this. So, the prologue starts with this study, and it says there's two researchers and they rounded up a thousand men who had previously been in like a three decade-long study of their health behavior and outcomes. So these are folks they had lots of data on. And these men by now were like 70 years old. And the researchers were curious around finding out whether or not there was a dimension of like personality that might be critical to health outcomes. So, like, is there something about like their, you know, the way they think about the world or the way they operate that might be linked? So they decided to ask these men and their wives, which I think is super interesting, 10 questions, just 10 questions. Um, And even though they didn't have all the background data of the wives, they included them. So they ended up with about uh, just over 2000 people and they waited five years. So they asked the questions and then they waited five years and they got back in touch with these folks. And in that time, 126 men and 78 of the women had, had passed away. So they naturally had like the division between people who were still alive and people who had passed away. And they were like, let's see if there's anything in those histories, like in the medical histories and the questionnaires, that might help us predict longevity. Right. Um, so, like, I love already the premise of like we're curious. Like, is there anything else that we don't know about that might help us in um, in having a long life? And they actually found that one of the personality traits um, that they identified in their questionnaire was more predictive of mortality than any other health or personality feature, except for cancer. So it was more predictive than whether or not they were a smoker, uh, their cholesterol levels, their educational attainment, their mental health, like all of those things, except for cancer, there was a personality trait that was more predictive. And so if they scored like one standard deviation above average, like one, you know, big unit above the average in this personality feature, the risk of them dying in the next five years was reduced by 30%. I mean, that's huge. If you could tell me there was something I could do to increase my life expectancy by 30, like that's huge.
1: For sure, Audrey. And here's where we should say press pause in this recording if you don't want the spoiler. Yeah, go read the book. But you probably already figured it out. What's amazing, the one factor was curiosity. I know. So uh, as you said, 30%, that's, that's significant. Curious seniors were more likely to be alive five years later. Wow. So not only was curiosity a positive influence, it actually may have kept them alive. It's pretty amazing to think about that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What's also interesting, and the author brings this out, is that in society, curiosity is not always looked at as a positive thing. The author even mentions the phrase, curiosity kills the cat. And you know, we can think of different examples of literature and other references, you know, throughout society, that curiosity is not always valued as a positive thing. So that's kind of interesting, Audrey with your your point about this study, but then we think about society in general, curiosity isn't always something to be desired, right?
0: Right. And you know what's super interesting about that is like if you had asked me right before this podcast, do you think curiosity is a good thing or a bad thing? I would be like, always oh, good, right? Um, but as soon as I read that, I'm like, no, there are plenty of times when I am frustrated by curiosity. When I, you know, my kids ask me the question, why, for like the 15th time, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, go ask Google, I don't care. Um, you know, like I get so inundated with like someone else's curiosity. I'm like, just stop asking questions and just do it, you know, and I've heard, I've said it to teachers, I've said it to students, I've said it to my own kids. Um, and so I know that there's a place in time where I get pushed even to the point of saying like, curiosity is killing that cat. Like stop being curious and just focus on the other stuff. So I, I thought it's interesting that, that the authors bring that back in um, because like you said, before having that mention, I was all on board with like curiosity is always good. Um, and I can definitely I can definitely see how even in our society and myself, there are times when I'm like, maybe that's too much curiosity.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, but let's, let's go back for a minute to schools though, right? Hmm. So as we think about schools, is the author points out that the longer kids stay in school, the less curious they mm-hmm. become. Um, that's so interesting, right? And I think I think we both noticed that in, in our time as educators. But you know, there's something about that that doesn't make sense because uh, the phrase like "you don't know what you don't know" comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we, you and I have both used that phrase before. Um, in some ways, based on that phrase, like the more you learn the more you realize you don't know. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem to, to, to make sense that as kids get older, oh, well, they just know more. So they don't have as many questions. It actually should be the opposite, right? It, you should become more curious because you're finding out more things and now you are you have more questions to ask. And so I, I think that that's, that's kind of interesting, right?
0: It is. I, I I noticed it as a secondary, as a high school teacher, like- Kids were just not as curious about what we were doing in school. But like I said, there were instances outside of school where they were extremely curious. So I think it's a really interesting point to think about what does it mean to have curiosity inside the classroom as students get older um, and thinking about, you know, they walk in the door they're curious selves and what is it we're doing in school that either diminishes the curiosity, doesn't leave space for curiosity. Um, And as you said earlier, like there's just so many other things on our plate that it just kind of gets left behind, um, perhaps even accidentally.
1: Yeah. I I think I like your point about accidentally. I think there's so many things in education that are well-meaning that we could actually be doing the opposite of what our intention is. So I, I think it'd be interesting to keep an eye on that as we go through this discussion together. Um, another point that that was mentioned was when we were curious about others, we develop stronger relationships with them. That is something I certainly had not thought about before. What did you think about that?
0: Yeah. I I hadn't thought about that either, but I can see it now that the idea of being empathetic or having empathy has to be linked to curious. Like I'm, I'm, I'm curious about who you are and how you're feeling. Right. Um, and that that can then develop into, um, empathy and a desire to, um, to develop a relationship, right. And to, Mm. to consider your feelings and your situation and your, your stance, you know, they make a case just briefly for curiosity and and I'm excited to learn more as we read more like that. It's not only about developing stronger relationships, but like it's more strongly linked to student success than anything else, including IQ or persistence. Um, It's employee curiosity. So like teachers being um, curious um, is highly linked to their engagement and it's greater linked to personal satisfaction, right? So like you're happier in your work um, and higher, have more higher engagement with your work when you're curious. And then, you know, they remind us that nobody has to actually learn to be curious, that that's actually something innate in how humans are um, and exist even at birth. So I I think that those are some really interesting cases around curiosity. I'm I'm curious to learn more about curious myself. So, but what thoughts do you have as you're diving into this book? Or is there anything else that you're kind of curious about?
1: Yeah, there, there was something that um, as I was finishing these introductory sections, there was something that did pop into my head. And um, I know there's a lot of discussion around this idea of personalized learning, and it's really become kind of a catchphrase over the years. And, but it also is open to a lot of interpretation, like a lot of our phrases in education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when I th- started thinking about the idea of curiosity and the, this idea of personalized learning, it really kind of shifted my perspective around it. And this is what I mean by that. Um, What makes a student curious and how that curiosity drives a student learning, a student's learning and makes it more personalized. That's different than me as the educator saying, I'm going to personalize Mm -hmm. your learning for you. So I'm really interested as we read this book, Audrey, as as we discuss it, I'm looking forward to considering how That reverse of that power structure really can happen more as we make curiosity the main event um, versus sort of a catchphrase of personalized learning being the main event. So um, it will be interesting to, to keep an eye on that, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, folks, thanks for joining us for this episode. Like we mentioned in our next episode, we will chat about part one, getting curious about curiosity. Which is chapters one through three. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag #SumMathChat. That's hashtag S U M M A T H C H A T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on staying curious.